This episode was released April 21st, 2020. In light of the March 16th murders of eight people, six of whom belong to the AAPI community, we thought it important and necessary to re-release this episode in which members of the AAPI community talk about their experience. We stand with the AAPI community in this time of grief and will continue to serve as advocates and allies however we can. Welcome back for another episode of Echoes on Air. I'm Janelle. And I'm Chris, your co-host. <laughs> and we've got um, some wonderful people, some new people in the studio. Uh, we've got a returning guest, which I'm super excited about. Um, so why don't we start with you, Rahman, and if you can uh, introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Rahman Chahiari, and I guess like I am Asian-American. Well, I'm Asian. And I, what do you want to know? Are you a teacher? I'm a teacher. Great. I'm a teacher in the Dallas area. And um, I am a Chinese Indonesian. And I've been in Texas for like 20 something years. Perfect. And there you go. And we'll go with you next. Yes. Hi, I'm Anna Kim, and I am a Korean-American licensed marriage and family therapist, also a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and I'm a counselor, counseling, therapizing, I should say, um, <laughs> in Dallas, uh, specifically in Oak Cliff. Hey. You also know she just said therapizing because I can't talk, and I say silly <laughs> non-words. I promise you, our panelists are much smarter than I am. But also, did we know what you meant by therapizing? Yes. yes True. We, we created our own language. Yes. Any words that you can understand is correct. So that's linguistics. You can count. And last but not least, um, I'm Grace Toulousen. I'm the author of the memoir, The Body Papers. I'm an immigrant from the Philippines, and I live in the Boston area, and it's my first time in Dallas. Yay! So I'm super, super excited. And I have to tell you guys that this um, episode is like a year and a half in the making. Um, and I've been wanting so badly to do an episode. So like admittedly and selfishly, a lot of the times when I create these um, episodes, it's because I want to learn more. And I feel like if I don't know it, I'm sure, and, and I'm somebody who in, like intentionally seeks out stories and tries to study. So if I don't know it, I am certain that people who don't seek out stories and try and find it do not. So um, admittedly, I'm super ignorant, which makes me super excited to be in this room to get um, just different perspectives of the American experience from, from other cultures and other um, ethnicities and, and nationalities and, and all of that. Um, but I, I also have to say it was very difficult to find any Asian American to come and like talk about um, these experiences. And I, and I wonder, hey, what made you guys, because in, in fairness, all three of you, there was no hesitation when I approached you. All three of you were like, yes. And so I'm wondering, what is it different? What, what do you think it is about you and maybe perhaps what you know about the community and the culture in general that maybe makes people more reserved 
Well, I mean, I, I can start. So I'm, um, I mean, I probably would be the person that would be shy and reserved and not want to put myself out there. But because I've published a book, I've had to develop this part of me that is more public and willing to be out in front. Um, but for me, anyways, I was taught to um, be quiet and listen. And I don't know if that's particular just to my family or to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a larger cultural Quality, I, I don't know, but I just know that I wasn't particularly encouraged to speak up, raise my hand, or stand out in front of people and get attention. So it's actually um, really hard for me, and I've learned to develop that part of me. So at least that's my experience. Mm-hmm. I can definitely echo what Grace is talking about. I think initially when I was asked by you, Janelle, I was excited. You, you and I kind of talked behind the scenes about another opportunity like this. Um, and there's a part of me, I guess I will say the inner child in me, that's like, mm, Maybe not. Maybe maybe I'll stay quiet because that's how I've been socialized. That's how I've been raised or taught to be. Um, but I think becoming a therapist, I feel that responsibility to really be to really speak on these experiences that maybe aren't always talked about. Um, I get the privilege of hearing those stories in a very intimate way, right? When I'm um, working with people and counseling. Um, so yeah, I just feel that overall responsibility to to be a part of that conversation. And if it's and I think my personal experiences where are these stories? Why aren't I hearing more of that? Um, so I'd love to be a part of the solution. And with me, is like I grew up in a family of immigrants. My grandparents immigrated from China to Indonesia. And my, but all my parents and my grandparents were not even naturalized as citizens until in the 70s. And, and, and me, I immigrated to the U.S. And in the culture I grew up in, I've been taught to stay quiet and not stir the pot. Mm-hmm. And you, as an immigrant, I was taught to be invisible because when I become visible and go against the norm, I get in trouble, which my dad got into because it went in his youth. He has to assume a different identity and all those things. And I was like, okay, it was better for me to stay quiet. And it took me, you know, after about like a decade living in the States that I started to feel that being completely who I am is the most important thing. And, and I can give the younger generations to have a voice that they did not have before. I, you know, see, I'm already going off script because I knew that was going to happen. You guys were going to say things and my head was going to go in circles. So um, currently I'm taking, I keep talking to Chris. I'm sure Chris is tired of me talking about this class, but this class is like blowing my mind in random ways. Um, I'm taking a class called Race in a Polarized America. Um, And one of the things that almost immediately uh, that we started off talking about, and it could be because there is a very large Asian American population at Harvard, um, and so my classes are at Harvard Extension. Um, it could be because of that, but one of the topics that we talked off, uh, talked about almost immediately was the Asian American population with respect to politics and, and different movements and so on and so forth. And statistically, the... Um, assertion is that the Asian American voice is super silent, even in um, the polls um, and in and a lot of places. And of course, we can immediately take into account immigration status and if their voice can, in fact, legally be counted. But even still, 
the voice is super silent compared to the voices that are legally able um, to be heard. So I'm wondering if maybe this thing that you guys are talking about, the way that you're socialized, does that translate to voting as well? Or, I mean, because I feel like voting, of course, is a, a secret. And so it seems like that would still kind of protect that kind of lack of visibility. You can still go and vote. But I'm wondering if, if some of this that you're talking about culturally translates to that. I mean, I think perhaps um, the experiences that my parents had in the Philippines around politics does definitely inform the way they are in the United States and what they taught us. Like, they did very directly tell us, do not be political, do not raise your voice in political ways. If, you know, we've had the right to vote for a long time and I have to physically go drive an hour away, pick my parents up and bring them to the poll. Otherwise, they'd be like, well, you know, why vote? And I'm like, no, you have, please, like, just, it's the smallest thing. Like, we just have to do it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think their experiences in the Philippines, um, they, uh, you know, they saw some quite um, big consequences for going out and protesting and raising your voice against a dictatorship. They saw people around them disappear or get assassinated. So that's why I think they have that idea. But, you know, we are in the states where um, bad things still happen, but generally there's um, accountability and there's, um, you know, a safer process for people to raise their voice and dissent. Um, but, you know, even as recently as a couple years ago, I don't know, I was watching the news with my father father and my niece, and maybe we were watching like um, Black Lives Matter protest on the news, and my father directly told my niece, oh, don't participate in protests because I care about you and I don't want you to get hurt. Oh, I think, I know what it was. It was the Charlottesville incident. That's what it was. Oh, wow. And so my dad was so scared, um, and that was horrible, um, you know, so that's his attitude, I think, is looking at us as his family members as opposed to joining a larger force that could be very powerful in this country. Well, and if I can, you know, it's it's not as though I know plenty of black people who had the same reaction of like, oh, like these protests are getting really serious. And rather than the impulse of that means more of us need to be active, the impulse was, okay, that means we need to, we need to pull back, we need to hide away, we don't want to be the ones that, we don't want to be the next person to die at a protest or to be killed by a, a white supremacist. Um, and so it, it, I just think it's important that it's not as though, it's not like every Asian American person or every Pacific Islander has this like same impulse to, to go the opposite direction. But perhaps maybe it is like those cultural factors that aren't really a big deal in the aggregate, maybe they become a bigger deal. Do you know what I mean? If there's that like little thumb on the scale of like, okay, so now maybe instead of, you know, where 20 out of 50 black Americans might have felt that way, maybe now 25 or 26 or 27, you know, um, I want to say the, the acronym, A-P-A-I. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get really good at this by the end of the episode, I promise. Um, but like maybe... 27 APAI people will like, APIA, I'm, I'm going to do it right, um, feel that way, feel that, that, that impulse of let's pull back. And so I think it's important to emphasize that like 
you know, like when you said that about your dad, I was like, oh, I've heard that. I hear that from older people in my family. Arguably, we hear that from uh, older black Americans in, in voting results in a lot of ways. Like, let's pull back. Let's be safe. We did our, our big, we had Barack Obama, first black president. Now let's be a little bit safer. Um, but I think that it's, it's interesting to think that, that maybe there is that cultural factor that makes it, again, is the difference between 23 out of 50 and 27 out of 50. And we feel like this is the, this is the culture. And like, yeah, it's because there's a difference, but it's not as though it's like zero and 50. Right. And we have, have actually been there as a community, in like, it, but we've been erased or made invisible. So, for example, mm-hmm. people talk about Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers. You know, um, Larry Itliong was there with Filipinos also protesting. But even like one of the, the last movies about Cesar Chavez sort of erased or diminished the role that Filipino um, farm workers had in that movement. Um, Yuri Kochiyama, for example, um, you know, she was, um, I believe she was the person like when Malcolm X was assassinated you know, she was there, like she was, I mean, I think Spike Lee presents this in his, um, you know, film um, X, um, you know, you know, Yuri Kochiyama is the one who is there and, and it, um, holds Malcolm X as he um, dies. Wow. So Asian Americans have been around, um, Grace Lee Boggs as well, but perhaps we just have been either invisible or erased. Janelle is looking at, was like looking at me like, what? Why did no one tell me this? Spike Lee! Yes! You lied! You right. I, and it, it's also because like the amount of times that I've seen that movie, oh. like... It, I wonder, like, why do you think that is? Um, and, and I say that within the same thought process as um, in the U.S., racism becomes very black and white, pun intended. Um, and mm-hmm. I wonder why it is that you, th- like, why do you think, especially because there is a large, a- large Asian American presence in our country. Um, and growing. And growing. And I think like, maybe one of, if not the fastest growing demographic groups in right the right now according to again according to the class that's actually um the larger statistic like there's this big concept of all the mexicans are coming not even latinx but just right the mexicans yes it all gets com- reduced right. to right. one country to all of the mexicans that are coming and really that's not the largest group of people that are immigrating to the u.s right now and so that being said why do you think that happens then? Why does it get reduced to being black and white? Why are you erased? Well, I, I think like, you know, the Asian American community, I, like as a gay man, um, that have been on dating sites before phones. I can remember the days when I came out in the early 2000s where I would go online and, and then people said like racism has gotten worse. I would say like, I would say that racism has been there. Now it is out in the open. Mm-hmm. And with the cloak of the internet, mm-hmm. like there are guys who would say, whites only. Yep. No blacks. Mm-hmm. Now, the Asian American, the Asian, like, it's not even visible. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, and they, they're like, they would say, like, you know, like they would, you have a white guy who's like, I would like only talk to black guys or black or Hispanic. And then, but there's nothing about Asian, mostly it's about like what race or preference and Asian doesn't even exist. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's this overt yes. either fetishization or yes. rejection of black or Hispanic men, and then it's, it's not even a common Like we don't even exist. 
Wow. Although I have found that to be, recently I think that that has changed, and not always for the better. Like, it'll, they'll, they'll do like the, I mean, gay dating sites, right? No fats, no femmes, no Asians, mm -hmm. no black, mm -hmm. right? So it's changed, but largely for the worse. So great yeah. job. It, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed for the 20 years that I, you know, I would go to dating sites again and again. It's still the same feeling. And, you know, and sometimes like guys would say like, don't you read that I don't talk to Asians? Oh yes. my God. So and they would just block me. <laughs> yes. But, you know, and you would not, not know that. Not just racist, that. but... Also. Yeah. But you would never see that when you are face to face with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 You go to like, you go to mm -hmm. Pride and it's everybody's welcome. Yeah. And we're all friends. And then you get on Grindr, Tumblr, Grindr, oh, yeah. Tinder, et cetera, et cetera. And they would, they would say like, you know, as an Asian, like, and they kind of like fetishize what Asian person's supposed to be. Like, I am hairy. I am big. I'm loud. I'm opinionated. I'm not the type of Asian that, that if they're like Asian, like I don't. Ha I'm, I don't. I'm not like the demure, yeah. clueless, naive Asian. So it's which like, also I've met a lot of Asian Americans, <laughs> and like a lot of them aren't like that. Like that's just mm -hmm. a personality thing. Like there is more. There's always going to be more variation within just about any category you can come up with mm -hmm. than between categories. Yes. Right? and that's that's one thing. Like about the racism. It's like you know, if I don't feel fit the mold what the media portray, then I'm not a good Asian, I guess. And as like you know, and I think I, I look at things about like you know the what is that the Asian American what is it called achievement, achievement paradox. paradox yeah it's like you know get good grades and stay shut up. Mm. <laughs> you know, in your book, you mentioned something about this grace too, where you were saying, and I wish I could. This is the one tab that I don't have on your book. Is uh, I can't point to it specifically, but <laughs> you said something about um, like essentially maybe it played to your advantage, um, not the achievement paradox in particular, but in the model minority, which of course I am kind of extracting that from the good Asian. Um, and I, I wonder if maybe you might talk about that in terms of how it works for you, but also how it works. Because I feel like model minority sounds super like complimentary until you know what they're saying. Right. <laughs> Right. You know, much yeah. like articulate and right. Yeah. Uh, right. all those other... These dog whistles. <laughs> um, well, so that term was uh, started by a journalist, I believe it was the 70s or 80s, I'll have to remember, um, and really it's a way to pit us against each other. Mm -hmm. like, yep pit Asian Americans against Latinx and yeah. black communities, I think. Um, and, other, and it I'm, works well. Yeah, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, no. but that's sort of what the result was, whether the journalists intended to do that or not. But, you know, it's a way of saying like, oh, why are Asian Americans doing and Asian immigrants doing so great, but like the other communities don't? Well, there's reasons and like people have done studies and can tell you like there are, of course, big reasons. And also Asian Americans are a heterogeneous group. Like, we only started disaggregating data 
Florida, I believe, in the fall. Um, and there are, you know, people who come from um, refugee and war experiences that, of course, are not doing as well as the people who are, like my parents, who are physicians and professionals in, in their home countries. So it was important for us to disaggregate the data um, on Asian Americans so that we could, uh, you know, see where there was more need. And I guess with the census, some of that data will become clearer. Um, so I don't know. I'm all for solidarity. And I think that if our communities and other communities that have been marginalized and oppressed see ways that we can help each other and, um, you know, try to work against the, you know, supremacist institutions and policies that are working against us and separating us, like it's incredibly radical for us to unite and work together um, as opposed to like fight over resources, small resources here and there. Um, so it's, you know, I love this podcast and the fact that, you know, we have this, you're, you're intentionally wanting to build those bridges in, in our communities and have us talk to each other because you're right, like there's so much we have in common. Um, but in terms of the model minor minority myth working for me, People did say to me in high school and even college a little bit, a lot in high school, but less in college, um, people had an expectation that I was good at science and math to the point where I was like, oh, I guess I am smart in science and math. And I wasn't. Like, I put it to the <laughs> test. I was like, sure, I'll study pre-medical sciences. And I really wasn't. I worked very, very hard for, like, B-minuses in those grades. And I was even on the math team for a little while in high school. I was terrible. Like, I brought everyone's scores down. It was like, I just, so, I don't know. There was this way that, of course, I loved when people thought I was good at stuff. But it wasn't the, the right things that I was good at. So it didn't, it was weird for me. I wonder if you could talk, Anna, about, because, again, and, and looking at, like, the stats and hearing that type of a story, what does that do to a person to be told what you're good at? without actually being good at something? Like, what does that do to, yeah. to your psyche? Your to psyche? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to just share a little bit about my personal experience, too. I grew up in New Jersey, at a suburb of New Jersey. I was maybe one of four Asians. Okay, wait, wait. Quick question. Yes. So which suburb, which part of Jersey? Um, Bergen County. So northern northern okay. New Jersey, right? right I'm like, always curious about the geography of New Jersey. <laughs> I live in Jersey City for like five and a oh, half okay, minutes. Yeah, yeah. But it makes me just really like, I'm, I'm the That's expert. That's that connection the, thing There we is were a Jersey about pride that exists. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I was one of four Asians um, Americans in my in my entire school, and and that was not just elementary, but that was in all the schools that I attended. So there was a very gr small group of us, and I remember being young. I must have been maybe like I don't know first or second grade, and I kept struggling in math because I guess that minority uh, or that stereotype is all Asians are good at math, right? And so what would happen is I would tell the teachers I would struggle. Obviously, tests and things would prove that I wasn't very good at it, um, but always feeling very invalidated by my teachers or minimized and saying, no, you're fine. You're good at this, right? And being told. And there is a level of confidence, right, that comes from that. It's encouraging. Mm -hmm. But what if you're really struggling and then you do get overlooked? And then what happened to me is then I go home and then I'm having to deal and face my parents and tell them, I'm struggling or I'm not good at this, which of course is not accepted, right? And so it's not just happening in the schools or the entities or communities around us where we're constantly invalidated in so many different other ways too, but they're also happening in the, in, in the home, right? And I would say even across mental health, there is such a stigma of that, right? What if you are dealing and struggling with depression, anxiety, maybe you are having thoughts of suicide, where is that safe to, to really talk about and share that vulnerability and that struggle? 
when um, even your parents are saying, oh, no, you have no problem, you're fine, right? Just um, pray it off, um, just sleep on it, whatever that is. And what that does to the mind as a child, when you think about that, I think, I believe we're all born with our truth. We know ourselves. And so when we're constantly <laughs> invalidated, that, that helps, that teaches us that to deny our truth, right? And that can happen in such small and really big ways. And what happens then is when you actually are struggling, of course you're not going to speak up, right? You've learned, or as maybe a survival strategy to be accepted, loved, um, or received, it was to just stay quiet and don't speak out. And so there's a huge, um, I mean, across all communities, right, such great suffering in, in silence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked a, a little bit about it when we were talking about Latinx being reduced to Mexicans, what is the, the danger in terms of even the blanket statement of Asian Americans? Because you guys are Asian Americans, but you're also Korean and you're also, uh, is it Chinese Indonesian? Chinese. Yeah, and you're also Filipina. Like, what is the danger of lumping you all together? Also, just like great minds think alike, because I was just about to go there. Take See, it. host mojo, Wonder, host mojo, right. it's Wonder always twins working. Activate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, the term Asian American was a construction by a UCLA professor. I think it was the late '60s, um, as a political, as a way for us to unite um, politically in mm. the United States. Um, even though we come, I mean, even just talk about the Philippines or look at um, what is India. Like there are so many religious backgrounds, languages, um, all kinds of of differences that we have, but to unite us under this umbrella term of Asian American was a strategic political act, right? But mm. so that was, so there's a benefit there. We can be more powerful together. Um, but in terms of uh, flattening us, there's that, um, you know, th there can be a detrimental effect there and not seeing our differences um, among us as a group. Uh, you know, for me, um, uh, Asian or Oriental, was really uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was a stand-in for Chinese. People only knew Chinese. They didn't know um, Filipinos at all. Um, so there was that. Um, so, you know, all the, the ways that people wanted to say racist jokes, it really was about Chinese to me. And at the time, I was a child, and I didn't want to be the butt of a joke. So I would insist to them, like, I'm not Chinese. But actually, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because what they're doing, and this happened to Vincent Chin, who was murdered um, in Detroit. Um, he was mistaken for a um, Japanese person. And these angry, um, out-of-work auto workers um, beat him to death. Um, and he was Chinese-American. And, and he was about to get married. Um, you know, so in a, in a way, it actually doesn't matter. People read us and perceive us as whatever they want to. Um, and so, I don't know, we, that's why I think there's, of course, you know, bad things and, and good things about it. But I think, to me, I always go back to solidarity and, and working with each other as much as we can. So it's funny you say that, because one of my questions was about this, this paragraph in your book. <laughs> And I kind of want to read it and um, get kind of everybody's reaction to it, but not just the reaction, but like um, maybe if there's a parallel that you maybe have experienced in your lives. So this is um, a paragraph from The Body Papers, um, brilliantly written by Grace Toulouse. And I have fangirled over you for like the whole weekend. I'm sure you're tired, Thank but serious. You. I am not tired. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, okay, so it says, 
Not only was I insulted by how breezy and casual people were with their racial comments, but I was deeply hurt. I had lived in this community since I was five years old, but I was still other, foreign, and suspect. And yet, growing up, when I heard people make disparaging comments about Mexicans, black, Jewish, and even Chinese people, I didn't speak up. I distinguished myself from those people by saying, at least in my head, that I was from the Philippines, not China, as if that made any difference. What mattered was that I was not white, whatever that meant. Um, and this happens all over the country. And so I would like to maybe just talk about that little excerpt and get like everybody's kind of parallels, if you have any. So funny you said about that. And um, early in my teaching career, Obviously, I was much, much younger, so closer to the age of my students. And uh, I was teaching at a different school where it's a very diverse group of students. And in general, they, are res they respect each other. However, when they get to be separated into the Hispanics, mm -hmm. the whites, the blacks, they would start talking about the other races disparagingly. And they did not see me because I was Asian. So I was kind of blended in into each of the group. And I saw how their true opinion mm -hmm. behind closed door of what the other race is going to be, what the other races are. And this is equally the white towards the black and Hispanics, the Hispanics towards the blacks and the white, mm -hmm. and all those things. And I stayed silent. And... It took me a long, a long while to just like, you know, it is not acceptable for me to be silent anymore, you know, and I need to call them out. And, and these are young kids, right? It's my responsibility to call them out for their attitude. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that reminds me of that experience that I have, so. Yeah, I'm trying to think what I want to say to that. There's so many thoughts. How do I pick? <laughs> Say them all. Right. Yeah, right? We have um, time. <laughs> gosh, I could really, that re really resonates with me, Grace, because I think growing up in a predominantly right white uh, suburb, I always felt like I was um, left out, right? Or not included, or even if I tried to be, because that's all you want to do as a kid is blend in, fit in, and be accepted. Um, there was always, because of who I was and the, and the skin of my color, and, and because I was Korean, that I was always disenfranchised to some to, in some way and you know everything everyone I think has an experience of what that wh where how racism appeared in their life at first and I think for me it was um I must have been walking you know back when when you can walk to and from school without any supervision and I was by myself walking home I must have been as young as maybe five right and um at least maybe three cars passing by screaming at me chink and I just remember at even five? at five, right? A child. Because nobody cares about right. kids even. Right. Like, your hate doesn't care about kids. Exactly. Really? Oh my God. And even as I retell that story, it's kind of, it's, it's chilling and it's jarring because even me as an adult thinking back on that, even though it's my experience, it's, it, it, it's so um, traumatizing. Yeah. It's so very traumatizing. And so I, I think everyone rec can recall those moments in their life where that's happened. Um, and then I also remember thinking, wanting to correct them too, right? And being like, well, I'm not a jink, right? That's not even the right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the right story, right? 
Right. And I remember going back home and telling my sister what happened and she'd be like, well, that's not even right. Right. You're not even a chink. And, um, and there's just, and feeling so injustice, like feeling the injustice even at that age, right. Of why can't they at least educate themselves and get it right. Right. <laughs> that would at least be more acceptable. That we always find an excuse yeah. to like, Brush it because it is traumatic, right. right? So that's part of our defense against that trauma. Exactly, exactly. And then what I was t- talking about earlier of just it's always minimized and always overlooked, right? And so um, that that really resonates with me, and I remember that so so clearly. Um, so, but but it's like what you say, Grace. It doesn't matter, right? That shouldn't matter. It's the fact that that happened, and it continues to happen. And um, I feel for I feel for the young children who maybe the, the greater consequence of us being silent has, has caused in, in their lives, right? And, and kind of how, how I don't know, I'm, I'm very curious to know what kids are experiencing now um, with racism and things like that. I'm sure it's a lot of the same. Um, and then there's also parts of me that I hope is a lot different. You know, I can go back to, my parents are immigrants from Korea, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom for just a little bit while I was um, young, and she would always pack me lunches. And that was such a privilege, right? I look back on that, I'm like, wow, I had parents who cared for me, who worked really hard to put food on the table and give me my ethnic food. And I remember it was such a shaming thing, right? I mean, kimchi. Kimchi. If you have anyone, I love kimchi, and I'm so glad that they're like selling it at the food markets, right? In the groceries now, yeah, it's becoming like, so common. But know, imagine being—imagine right? being like the only Asian kid in the cafeteria, one, and then your food stank. Another right. reason to be excluded or pushed away. Um, and I remember denying my own culture because of that, right? And it was all just what to fit in. Right. Um, Please give me the right? most lunchable, like all That's this white. Right. <laughs> Which will not take <laughs> and now I grow up, and I'm just I'm dying for that for the, my mom's food. You know what I mean? Um, so it's just interesting. It's it's interesting to see and, and reflect on how I've denied and and pushed away my own um, culture and ethnicity to fit in and to be a part of a the majority. Oh God. Okay, well, in, it's in a second yes. that we have. Like, I don't know why that kimchi story like like resonated with me so much <laughs> because like because you know like it's not like Black American food is not necessarily like recognized as that that separate from White American food, right? So I don't know that I ever had that exact experience, but for whatever reason, that so much reminds me of. It's just those. It's the little and also just the the tangible markers of difference. Do you know what I mean? It's it's skin color, but it's also things like it is like smell and taste and and just and and like and the sound of your voice and it's it's so interesting to think about the ways that we are marked as different and how how much you want to like run away from them and like no, no, what are you talking about? I'm not the, but at the same time you want to embrace them. and it's 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 difficult to have ambivalence about your own mm. self. So <laughs> right? true. So true. I mean, I can't count how many times I threw away those lunches and yelled at my mom saying, do not ever cook me Korean food and pack it for lunch, you know? And so, but then, then again, I'm, I'm an adult now and all I do is crave those Asian foods, right? Yeah. <laughs> and learning how to embrace that. And, and also how maybe I think Korean American specifically just growing up it was always Chinese right and I think now that you even know what kimchi is there's been so much more of um, I guess awareness of who we are because it's yes. just time and, and our foods being accepted now and, and, and kind of being a trendy thing um, 
So it's just interesting to see that change. It's also, I mean, well, if you... No, 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 I mean, I did, but go for it. Well, one, one thing that I'm curious about, especially with this, um, again, on the topic of, of the different nationalities that we, for a real political purpose, have, have put, a, put under this umbrella, um, it's interesting because a lot of these nations have very fraught histories, mm. you know, especially like being Korean American, like the history of like Korea, China, and Japan is often like a colonial, like a really bad history. And then like to then kind of like get subsumed over this, well, now we're all in America now and white people are like, I don't, this is all the same to me. I don't get it, right? So, like, w- what is that experience? And not just not just as a Korean American, but like as Filipino, like you have a totally different history with like China than at least like you know Korean Americans. Like at least Korea is close to China, whereas the history of I don't even know what the history of the Philippines like the colonial sort of you know overlord in in Philippines was America, and so that's a different experience. And then even being like Chinese Indonesia and like, Indonesian is like totally different. And I like there's the whole. Americans, the Allies supported like colonialism in Indonesia really? after World War II. Wait, so who was who was colonizing Indonesia? At the so time? Indonesia was colonized by the Netherlands, uh-huh. by the Dutch, and oh. then the Japanese came in. The Japanese went away, right at, at the end of World War II, and then the Dutch tried to come back. Well, the Dutch is part of the Allies, so like the U.S. actually support the Dutch to try to kind of like topple the independence, like the, the independent Indonesian government. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing, and the Indonesian government started getting support from China. Mm-hmm. And the Indonesia started going to towards like communism until the American government supported a general in Indonesia mm-hmm. to topple the communist-supported government in the 60s. Can I just tell you I love having <laughs> teachers on the show? Because you guys are like, great. You're like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so, like, you know, the U.S. has, like, you know, like, and nobody knew about, like, the yeah. U.S.-supported general in Indonesia. Yeah. That was, and, you know, and we were told, I was growing up, like, we were told, like, we are a democracy. But we have, we have election every five years. But we had the same president from 66 to 1998. Because, like, we vote, like, you know, that's one party who always win. And that party always, with the other two parties, selected the same president for 30 years. So it's like, but it's a democracy. We vote. But Sorry. you say democracy. No, 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 no yeah, because yeah. we vote and we yeah. have democracy and everything. Like, you know, we're like, we have political parties and we vote for them. And we are indoctrinated by mm-hmm. the government that we have democracy. Mm-hmm. And the third largest democracy on the planet, right? Yeah. That's like the big... Of course. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, until I get over here and I realize, like, wait a minute. Hold <laughs> up. <laughs> so what you mean is... Elections right? have different... But, but can, you, can you all speak to that, like, that historical conflation? When, like, as you've been talking about, like, you have such different national histories and such different yeah. relationships to those national histories. So what is that like? Like combining that national history with that racial category that yeah. that we put people in now in America. 
Yeah, I mean, people feel very um, separate because of our history. So um, we, the Philippines was uh, a colony of Spain for hundreds of years. And I'll give a shout out to um, my friend and, uh, Anthony Ocampo, who wrote this book called The Latinos of Asia, which talks makes that argument that we're Filipinos are closer in some respects to um, Latinx mm-hmm. communities because we have Catholicism as the main religion and, and because we were, we were colonized by the same um, power. Uh, but then, of course, we have... Uh, World War, we have the American period, then we have World War II and the Japanese are there, and then um, we have like um, the American neo-colonialism. But I know that uh, specifically around inter-Asian relationships, um, my family, my parents' generation had, were had a lot of bias against Japanese because oh. they because of what happened during the war. Right. Um, they were, you know, it was war, and there were horrible atrocities being committed to the point that my aunt, when one of my cousins fell in love with a man from Japan, my aunt had to have, like, some serious meetings with her local parish priest in the Philippines because she wanted to know, like, was that okay that her daughter was going to marry uh-huh. a Japanese person? Um, for a long time, my father wouldn't buy Japanese-made cars, it was this like very emotional loyalty. He didn't like speak against Japanese people or anything, but there was like this very emotional response to what he had seen and witnessed. What complicates that more, his fear about the Japanese Imperial Army, is that the people who were actually on the ground and conscripted were um, colonial subjects themselves. So oftentimes wow. the people who were in the Philippines, um, my my uncle was in contact with them and he said that there were um, Chinese and I think... Korean also, but I can't remember, but he said they actually, it wasn't like essentialized in a Japanese body, these people who were doing these atrocities. It was actually other It was coming Asian from the Japanese folks. government. Yes, yes. But it was not necessarily Japanese people that yes. were on the ground. Wow. He would call them like Manchurians or something, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that it was other colonized folks. Yeah. So, I don't know. But then again, we come back to power and like what happens yeah. with um, power and corruption and um, trying to oppress people and get power for yourself. But it's super important to to know that history um, because it explains so much about like the interactions within um, the APIA community. It explains... Um, it, and it hel- like it helps. I, I like that you smile every time. Like I feel like I that's like, your takeaway. Oh, and it was so <laughs> smooth. I'm gonna get there. Okay. Um, but like, I, I I wonder if that is also coloring how we view that community in the U.S. Right? Is our lack of our lack of knowledge a of what the history is, but b that there's a history that we need to be seeking out because I think very much like you know there's of course the the big push in talking about black American or African American history in the US and how it's only taught in one month well at least we get the one month you know like and I sure hate to say that but you know because I one thing I've always I always hate is when we compare struggles like who has it worse is it black people is it Asian people is it gay people is it you know like you like do you really want to compare battle scars or do you like, or do you want to like stop getting right, new battle right, scars exactly do you just want to stop the battle but and so I hate to say that but still at the same time 
even though we're being taught the same thing and it's a watered down version of MLK, like what's the, the phrase? <sighs> Rosa sat down so Malcolm could set, stand up and then we're all free. Like, like <laughs> yay, freedom. Like that's not really what happened, but at least there's just a, a little bit of that. But the names that you gave me, like I was like, oh crap, I'm going to be studying for days. Just for, And those were just two names. And I was like, I've never heard of these people, let alone knowing that they were there at, um, that she was there at Malcolm X's assassination. And, and the fact that these people are there and this community is there and it's always been there. We don't even know how, we don't even know that we need to seek out this information. Um, and I, I wonder because of that, <clears throat> um, and because of the way that Asian Americans have been treated in the US, we're not even talking about in the countries that we just mentioned and how that happened, but like as a whole, the US is not super kind to really anything that's not white, but specifically Asians in this particular case, are you seeing some of this history repeat itself? And I'm thinking specifically right now with the coronavirus and all of these things that are being said. Um, and this thing that has come from one province in China and has since been like contained more effectively there than it currently is being here. Um, right. And that being generalized to every person who's APIA. Yeah. Like, what, are you seeing that? Are you feeling that? I mean, I'm with my parents and my father um, is elderly and I, he coughed. We were like walking in a public space and he coughed and I was, and my immediate reaction was like, oh no, like I don't want my father to be, you know, a target or, mm. I mean, he's lived his life. Like he knows like people will say crap, but I was just like, that's my first response is like, oh, I just don't want him to have that microaggression um, just because he coughed into mm -hmm. his elbow. Um, but it's, you know, it's old feelings of xenophobia that folks have and they think that they can protect themselves by uh, treating certain groups in these ways. But, you know, I don't know, my, my nieces and nephews, they're um, mixed race, most of them. And, and so sometimes people don't know that they have Asian families, um, mm -hmm. or that they are also Asian, um, and so people say very, feel very free to say all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff in front of them, and they've been hearing it, and I know it's painful for them, but they said yes, when the coronavirus stuff came out, she said, oh, they wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the kinds of things that people say at school. And then in your head, you're like, yeah, I would. <laughs> well, you know, I'm kind of fortunate that the school that I'm teaching in has a huge Asian-American population, mm. like all Asian, like South Asian, East Asian, Southeast Asian, all of them. But um, I also work close to H Mart. <laughs> and uh, my friend's sister, who is a physician, uh, had a patient come by and said, like, uh, to the doctor's office right after the coronavirus thing, the, the outbreak. Uh, and this mother basically, I was at H Mart this past weekend. Do I need to worry about my child? And I'm like, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's like, wow. really? I was like, no, first of all, they're Korean. Well, second of all, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just, no. That makes no yeah. sense. Yeah. Your, your, your thought process there, no. So. But also, it's a, it goes back to that, you didn't even get the slur right. Like, you're you're yeah. not even insulting me properly. Like, you know, we don't, you know, like, and you know, a lot of people like we don't look alike. Mm -hmm. We don't look like, and they always make a joke that 
we Asian can tell the difference, the difference between one Asian to another, but all the other non-Asian just mm -hmm. lump us all in together. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will admit, like, when I, growing up in Texas and not knowing very many Asian people, like, yeah, I, 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 it was, like, not clear to me. And then when I went to college in New York and I was always around, you know, a huge diversity of people, then it became super obvious. Yeah. Like, oh, no, this is not the same at all. <laughs> I feel like that. I think I've talked about this before on the show, too. Like, that's how I, I felt when being in another country and you could always spot somebody from North America. Like, I would be like, they are from the U.S. It was, like, super clear. Where it wouldn't have been clear before you had that experience. Yeah. But, like, for sure, being there, I'd be like, no, this person, okay, this person definitely isn't Colombian, but they're likely British. But mm. I, I don't know exactly where this person is, but this person, and, and it would even go down to, like, black Americans where I'd be like he is black American he is probably black British but he him specifically that guy right there definitely <laughs> black American like I don't know what it is it's like a finely tuned yeah. sense of, but I think there's nothing wrong with uh sorting it as some of my yeah. colleagues at Tufts University in the psychology department they were doing this work about like how why people sort or how people sort like it's something we do mm -hmm. right but then I guess it's like what do you do with, with that this, information yeah. and how accurate is actually your what you perceive like maybe it's inaccurate or whatever so but. so perhaps maybe then maybe then trying to teach people not to sort which just your brain will do regardless yeah. teach them how to react to their own That's sorting and it's it's funny you say that because the I'm doing a research project that we're trying to hone down and one of the things that I have found and correct me if I'm wrong because also my grade is important. Yeah, right. It'll be um, helpful for right. the project. <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong. But um, my understanding is that the human brain categorizes. It's for it's a safety um, reflex as well. So like you have to like be able to sort like, yes, fire, bad. Like, you know, burner, okay, until it's on, fire, bad, right? right. Like those things, you have to be able to do that. Um, and as we're talking about our, our project, we're talking about colorism, specifically in the black American um, community. But also, I'm very aware of colorism in pretty much all communities. And then, of course, maybe flip-flopped in the white community since a lot of people tan. And so, like, it's, right. it's like a lot of people are like, oh, I'm too white. And so it's almost either way, uh, no matter what... Um, um, community we're talking about, there's this stigma or benefit to color. Um, and in talking about not just sorting um, ethnically, where these people, like the ethnicity of, of different Asian Americans, but can you talk a little bit about in terms of sorting colors? Because I'm very aware of the concept of, or the racial history of passing, um, but also I'm learning that that's something that also happens in Asian American culture as well. Yeah. Oh, so I grew up uh, hearing about color, colors, or we didn't call it colorism, but shade of brownness all the time. Even last night, like people, my parents and their friends are looking at photos of their grandchildren and they pointed out, they're like, oh, this one is darker. Like, it's just like they've been doing it for so long. And when I, I, I mean, maybe it's a way, it is a way of talking about class. Um, because of mm. ways that if you're working indoors or whatever, you're going to be lighter skinned. But also, particularly in the Philippines, if you have 
white or European features, you have probably mixed blood, but with who? The Spanish. And then who were the Spanish that were in the Philippines? They were priests. Well, like priests actually aren't supposed to um, have children. Um, so I don't know. So there's that too. So it's a strange thing. It's yeah. like, well, if you look mestizo or mestizo, like you may have had like a priest ancestor from, from Spain. So it's confusing. Um, but I don't know. This is how the prevalence of white supremacy and how powerful it is all over the place. And maybe it expresses its way in different places, but it's still powerful. There's, you know, your skin lighteners and your lotions and, oh, yeah. and all of that, um, that, and the, these ways that people want to not, um, be brown or even when someone is born, they, you know, are waiting to assess like how brown are they going to be because your skin shade, um, does carry some benefits and privileges, um, with them. Is there a thing that you notice? Cause like, I, I will tell you that being said, when people are looking at brown babies, at least I have noticed in not just my community, but in like family and friends that they look at the ears have you heard that, Chris? No. Yes. Okay, where they look at your ears to see how dark, like, so, like, if your ears are darker, that's how dark you're going to be. So they're like, oh, oh, such a pretty baby. Look at the ears. Like, I feel like that yeah. has been a thing. So is there a way, when you're saying, like, they look at the child, what are they no, looking at? No, no, no. They're just looking at the I mean, the it's child, it's a super right? ignorant just, way to say that, but, like, yeah. that's what so they do. So for us, it's like the skin yeah, tone. Yeah, yeah. And, then, about the ear. and then, you know, like, if you have a tendency to tan, they're like, keep you off the sun. Yeah. Keep you off the sun. Like, I see, like, my mom would be carrying around with a silver umbrella mm -hmm. when walking outside to reflect the sun. Oh, I mean, yes. You know, like, Porcelain skin yeah. is just yeah. I mean, so yeah. talked about, right? I mean, even in Korea, the, the, yeah. the beauty industry being a, such a multi-billionaire industry, and not just beauty, right? It's also um, plastic surgery and how it's kind of one of those like mecca places to go and get your whole face redone or even mm -hmm. body. All of the skin lightening um, mm -hmm. products because that light porcelain, the whiter your skin was, the more higher class you represented, right? And that was something that to be achieved. And and then also thinking about when you're thinking about like the ears, for me, it was always eyes, right? I mean, I, it's something that's so common within my friend's family was going to Korea and getting it almost as a gift to get eyelid surgery. So they, they appear more white or bigger, right? And then giving that as a gift as if it's something you have to change and, and this is something that you should um, want, right? And then they come back and, 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 and that's a lot of the people in, in America too. Um, it's, 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 it's so interesting. That always astonishes me how they're, and that's like encouraged too. But also what's at the root of it, which yeah. is an anxiety, right? Like you check the baby's ears and it's showing that there's this anxiety about what that shade will do for this child's future. It shows you yeah. like the, the persistence and the prevalence of su white supremacy, frankly, like to be that, you know, paying that much attention. So, I mean, like if you look at, when I was growing up, look at, look at manga, like the, the comic books, you know, the eyes of all those characters are huge. True. Like they're huge and not, like, Nobody, no people, white or Asian or black, have eyes those like big. That. But why do they do that? It's basically they um, kind of like the they idealize like Western features, like Caucasian features, because those eyes are huge. And um, even in Asia, it's like having small eyes is not a good thing. The big eyes are the good thing, and they will do surgeries like to have like folded 
like if you have one like the single fold and double fold eye eyelids, it's a big deal. And that is like multi multi million like like industry. I literally don't even know what that is. It's, it's so epic going, right? Yeah. You have so you have yeah. double it. Yeah. I have single it. She has single it. Almost. She almost half a double it. Semi. This is single it. Like nothing. Like. Epicanthic yes. fold, it's called. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My father's an ophthalmologist, and so we, oh. I like, he does eye surgeries, and we would talk about this thing. He never did an epicanthic fold surgery, but um, yes, it's a popular surgery. And the way that people would make fun of me when I was a child was to, um, I mean, it's a slur, like to pull your eyelids, right? Yeah. So they would do that to me. So even for an American child, like they've learned that there's something yeah. to make fun of a person for yeah. about their epicanthic fold. And I'd say, I don't know about other Asian communities, but in Korea, the face represents so much. There's so much pressure and weight to the face. Um, even to this day in South Korea, they will, a picture is always needed when you're applying for any job. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. And, and they believe that almost your personality can come through just by what your face looks like. So think about how dangerous that yeah. is. And now what you see is, unfortunately, when I go to South Korea, I have not been to South Korea since I was six, by the way. And there's a part of me that is almost afraid to go because I've had a lot of friends who go and it's just all this media and all this like, you know, billboards of looking like a a white American, right? But getting all this plastic surgery essentially to change them to feel more appealing, um, to even be on TV, they have to do a whole whole transformation. And it's it's so sad because even when I'm watching like Korean dramas or stuff, I look at them and I'm thinking, what is indigenous to even our facial expressions that is like, that they all kind of look the same, right? They all kind of look the same and it's really... Um, I feel sad about that, really. I do, because I feel like we should be embraced for all the uniqueness of how we all look so differently, even within our same culture. And it's just something that I'm seeing more and more go away, um, at least for me as a Korean and American, kind of looking in um, to, to what South Koreans are, are doing on the media I do side. also, I yeah. wonder how much that has yeah. to do with the increased commodification of like South Korean culture as that becomes a bigger and bigger industry and especially an industry that they want to appeal to a bunch of white people absolutely absolutely it's so it's really interesting I I think one of you were talking about earlier about kind of how so I married a Vietnamese American man and I I can't say how much how eye-opening that experience was just because I learned so much about his culture and where he's coming from we talk about this all the time how my parents came from Korea and his came from Vietnam but such different history Mm -hmm. and different outcomes and how that's then affected our trajectories, right? Um, You know, I think within the Asian culture, they'll say, you know, if you're Korean, Japanese, or China, there's a a hierarchy to even that within our cultures. And so um, I know I learned so much, and being that his family came to America as refugees from war-torn country where they, you know, I guess America helped and lost, right, is what they'll say, and and the impact of that. And just there's so many differences in that. Very I guess like so. there's different kind of level of Asian. Yeah, I, I saw a different something level of on Asia. Netflix. Should I? Can I say who did it? Whatever. <laughs> Ali Wong. Let's call him Ali yeah. Wong. She was, was making yeah. a comic, like you know, because yeah. you know, like there's jungle Asian. Right. <laughs> there's what? A good, yeah. Yes. So because yes. she is half like Vietnamese and half Chinese, so like she's half of the good Asian and half of the jungle Asian. Right. So That's so. 
That's very interesting that you would say that the, the, the phrase is jungle because, like, my as a black person, I immediately went to like Jungle Bunny, which right? Is, and I was like, I don't like that, right? Like, uh, like but, my immediate. Mm. But it's interesting because all of that is ultimately reflective of class, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what that really means is you are from a place that is less industrialized, less mm-hmm. urbanized, more rural, and in all likelihood, poorer. Yeah, right. yeah. Just like you know, like if they think like you're from China, from Japan, and from Korea. Yeah. Like you're from, from like more industrialized, and about you're from the Southeast Asia, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, then you are the less than. Right. And then there are ways that, so when I went to graduate school, I had a fellowship that paid for my graduate school because, and I was included in this because they didn't have actually many Filipino-American professors. And so the goal of this fellowship was to diversify um, the oh, academy. Oh, wait, can I ask, can I ask what yeah. it was? It was like it was for the UC system. Oh, it was like okay, okay. UC Irvine system uh, fellowship, but um, East Asians were not included in the category. So Korean, really? Chinese, Japanese Americans were not included, but um, Filipinos, Laotians, uh, Vietnamese, Cambodians were included because you didn't see. So there are there are differences that we see play out um, in who's been had opportunities or not, or who's you know. Uh, in a, in a certain industry or profession or not, so that's how I got my graduate school paid for was to do you think have it's, that. Do you think it's good to recognize those those differences within? Yes, totally. I mean, that's why we need them because what if that spot had been taken? What if that funding had been taken by somebody that might not have needed it or yeah. needed the boost? Yeah. Um, and so that's the group. So Laotians, like we, I mean, my goodness, like or other groups that that have had such harder histories in coming to this country. Like I definitely would want to support them and see more Cambodian and Laotian teachers and, and stuff like that. Sure. I, um, okay, so I know I'm going way back because we stepped away, um, but something that you said last night that I was like, yeah. mental note, let me search this out. Um, you talked about minority identity, um, let me say words that actually have letters, minority identity development. Um, and then when I looked that up, I, apparently there is a model. Yes, folks out there, there is a model. So um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because you were saying that there are stages of minority development. And I think when you were talking about it, you were saying, oh, yeah, that's one of the stages in terms of like that rejection. Um, so can you talk a little bit? And also for those that are listening, we'll put a, a couple of links um, so that you can kind of see what this is. Um, but can you talk well, a little bit? I mean, I was thinking specifically of um, Beverly Daniel Tatum's work. She wrote this book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting mm-hmm. Together mm-hmm. in the Cafeteria? Um, she's written other things. And so for a while, I was reading a lot of her scholarly work. And she did write about racial identity formation and about her uh, students in college classrooms in particular. And she was trying to like name and, and describe and talk about what she saw her students going through in a semester or even in a year. And so I got very interested in, in thinking about all those things and seeing myself in that, um, in, in those stages. And, you know, it was very enlightening for me to, to even think about, um, you know, you have different stages of being aware. I mean, and I went through them. Like, there was a time when I had no information about Filipinos in the United States, and then I went to college and I saw 
I saw historical photos. I did. I looked, searched Library of Congress, and I would see signs that said "No Filipinos or dogs allowed here." I learned about um, ways that Filipino workers were, or farm workers were, targeted and violence committed against them, and anti-miscegenation laws. I just like then I got really angry, and I thought, "Wow, I'm learning about all these ways that Filipinos contributed to the country, but then also were targeted um, for violence and and um, terrible acts." And then I was just angry for a while. Um, mm. And, you know, so, there, so I did recognize my development um, in those stages. And it was like coming to a consciousness. I have still like a ton to learn. Um, but there's just, you know, so many stories that we don't know. Like, I, as I've said before, I'm with my parents this week, and my father has been talking to me about General Custer because he's so... Um, he just he said, I've just learned the truth about General Custer, and I thought all this time that he was a folk hero, and he's not. He did horrible yeah. things to Native people. Yeah, and he said, how come I never knew that? And I said, I don't know, Dad. And he said, I'm learning all these things now. He said, how come, you know, I've always had this idea about him, and I realize I was told the wrong thing. And I said, yeah, there's a bunch of things like that mm. that you were told. So, um, you know, but then again, like, it's who whoever controls the the narrative is very powerful and that's why I think all of us we for me as a teacher I feel it's important to help my students and other people learn how to find the truth as much as possible and to have a process that will help them come to the truth there are people actively working to misinform us and influence elections and influence all kinds of things and if we don't have the education and the practice to know what's real and true um, we're going to be controlled by by the people who are able to manipulate us based on emotion. So I have a question that that triggered a thought in my head, and I hope this doesn't sound as bad as it does in my head. So I'm going to try and. <laughs> so I'm wondering. You were, you were saying something about um, what made you angry, and so it made me think of like what what has made me angry. And one of the things that like it, it's a movie. There's a movie called Rosewood that. Anytime I've seen it, like I have actively decided in certain cases, like I don't want to watch this movie and this is where it sounds bad and I don't mean it to and I hate to sound like the stereotypical, some of my best friends are white kind of thing, but like it makes me hate, (laughs) it makes me hate white people for like five seconds because Rosewood was just, it was just like it. Up until then, like, of course, you know about discrimination, you know about all these things. And then there's this moment in the movie where everything is just eviscerated. It's, it's set on fire and people are murdered and people are killed. And then you know in that moment that that actually happened. This is not just for film. This is what somebody physically witnessed. There are people who witness people hanging from trees and burning and so on and so forth. And while I hate the feeling of being that angry that I can say I dislike a group of people because that's just contrary to who I am as a human, um, I recognize the need for that movie. So I wonder if there is something that angers you, um, but you recognize the need for other people to see it and to know that it exists. Is there something that you could share with us, whether it's a, a book um, an experience that you've had, a movie that you've seen where it's just like, it's completely done to a point where it angers you, but everybody else needs to know. So I saw like a musical that I saw 
life, and I saw it again and again in theater, is Allegiance. It's it's with George Takei, and it's about the Japanese internment camp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was not a well-reviewed musical, but I love it because it tells the truth. And every time I saw that, I cried on how these Japanese Americans, not only they are, they, 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 they are true to who they are, but they're also um, like patriots, Americans, you know, like, you know, defending the country. And there are a few things that like, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I learned so much from that musical about how they basically have, you know, they go to internment camp and they have to sell all their possession for the pennies. They have to give it up and before they board on the train. And so it was just, it, it, was, it was really eye-opening on how this Asian American are being treated. And another part that really angers me is the review of the musicals, and a lot of people, a lot of the reason they say that it's not successful is because the music is not Japanese enough, is not Asian enough, and I'm like, they are Americans, <laughs> like they play baseball, they do swing dances, and if the sound is very American in the '40s, and I'm like, oh. this is not successful because people, people have, you know, people who, honest to God, trying to be supportive but they don't see their own racism and prejudice. And I'm like, they're American, y'all. Like, they were born in California. I was like, you know, there are some Japanese moments from the grandparents who immigrated, but, like, the musical itself is American. It sounded, it should sound American. Why is it being criticized for not sounding, quote-unquote, Asian enough? And that both kind of angers me. It's like, and it, it shows that how we as a country has, still has a lot of place to grow, especially on how we see Asian Americans. Yeah. I was thinking about one, I want to just recognize that it was only this past year that I went to a movie and saw Asian representation. <laughs> but I remember watching Crazy Rich Asians and there was a part of me that was, why are we being represented in this way that is so small and very not in a, in a major, like, you know, that you have to be rich to be Asian, right? Like mm-hmm. even in the title, there was a little bit of anger in that. But at the same time, I think at the overall feeling was, wow, I just watched a movie in the theaters and there yeah. were people that looked like me on the big screen, yeah. right? And so it was very confusing at the time, but I think the overall collective of let's just let's just celebrate that this happened um, took over, right? But I think I think that was just a, a stepping stone. And then I had such a very different experience when I went to go watch the farewell. And I don't know if you guys have watched that, um, but it was a story about essentially a, an Asian American um, whose grandmother was um, in China and she was dying, and so she makes that trip back to her. And even though she knew that her grandma was dying, it was something that um, wasn't talked about even in the family. And so they didn't want to talk about that. They didn't know how to even mourn or get ready for that grief. Um, and it was such a good, I thought, portrayal of what it is to be Asian, or, or for her, in her case, Chinese American, and not even have the ties to her Chinese heritage belief of thinking of the collective versus um, what is very American of us of thinking about our independence or what our, our needs are. And so I, I was, when I see things like that, I'm very aware of my own biases, right? Of being um, Korean American and, and, and yeah, being Korean American. Um, but again, I walk away from those experiences just thinking, wow, it took so long for, for me to even have this experience. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? It's yeah. mind-blowing to me. Yeah, we have such a long way to go. Um, the book and movie that I feel that anger towards transcends um, race and ethnicity and it's Spotlight. I mean, it's a Spotlight oh. film and it's the book that I read that I think is like sort of based on the reporting or the or the movie. Um, and the reason why that makes me so angry is because that I grew I grew up in a world full of people who are believers and they're Catholic and they priests are the celebrities of people that I, that I grew up with. Um, if when we travel, my mother wants to go to churches and like look at churches and Catholic churches and stuff like that. And so when I realize, and, and you know, Catholicism is all over the world. When I realize the kind of betrayal from a priest to, um, a child or in a, or a young person, that kind of betrayal that happens there between two people and then the bigger betrayal of the institution of the church who protected the priests and not the kids, that does really make me angry um, because it's also wrapped up in faith and belief and to take advantage of someone's faith and belief in that way to satisfy someone's um, you know, uh, what would you, I mean, I don't even know what to call it, their illness or their whatever it is, I mean, is, is horrible to me. So that's, that's a movie that I feel passionate about. I wrote about it a little in my, in my book, and I did grow up in the Boston area and grew up kind of around this. And I'm really, you know, grateful to the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe that they did this work, and I'm really glad that movie got made. And can I just, like, just quickly, it is so interesting that you chose that book and that movie because I think it's such a great representative of, like, I think that choice is so representative of identity insofar as like part of the reason that story speaks so powerful to you, powerfully to you is because as a Filipino woman, like so much of your family is so invested in the Catholic church. But part of the reason is also because you grew up in Boston and it's a Boston story. And also like as a writer, obviously you would feel a lot of kinship with like that Boston Globe team, right? So it's, I think that's just so fascinating because like not, all of the things that we love or hate or react strongly to, it's never going to have nothing to do with our ethnic or racial background, but it's also going to do, like, I'm going to respond to certain Dallas stories because it's a Dallas story, whether it happened mm -hmm. to, you know, regardless of race, or, or I'm going to respond to some, me and Jill are going to respond to certain things that are theater things, like, I was, like, really, like, vibing when you said Allegiance, I was like, oh, yeah, Allegiance, <laughs> right? Like, because it's a theater thing, and we both grew up in theater households, and I think that that's, um... I just thought it was really interesting of like how the layers of identity and how our, our national or racial identity is just one of those layers that we build so much else on top of. I actually kind of wanted to shift a little bit. We have like so many other questions that I do when I talk about, but I want to talk about um, the APIA involvement um, and, and engaging in advocacy. Um, because specifically, Grace, you mentioned a couple of people, and I would like you to tell us, especially to people who are listening, who should they be looking up? Because of course, we just we've already talked about like we don't know where to look. So these two names were very important. You had sent these to me before. Yeah. So I had mentioned um, Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs, and that is just a start um, to look at historically women, um, Asian American women who have worked a lot in human rights and in um, polit politics and advocacy work. Uh, there's many more, and you can probably just find them on Twitter. Like, start to, like once you start following one person who's interested in these things, and you can find more. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm actually blanking on this person's name right now, um, and I'm probably not going to say it correctly, but there's um, a scholar who is working on, um, she was working on Harvard uh, admissions. One of the works that she was doing was looking at like the, um, I think Asian Americans, there was like this thing going on about discrimination in Harvard yeah, admissions, right? Yeah, we were so, studying that this week. Yeah, so I think it's, it's Ai Jen Poon, but I, I might be wrong with her name. Um, I mean, there's there are pl- spaces to find where um, Asian American women are are being highlighted and celebrated, especially today, International Women's Day. You might find some of those folks, um, but even just looking at, um, you know, maybe even like googling like syllabi, Asian American history, Asian American studies, mm-hmm. and you'll start to find some names repeated, or maybe there's just one person, um, and you just start there and like find one name and, and read about them, and they'll mention other people, and just follow your curiosity about what you are interested in in regards to, um, you know, our community or Asian Americans who have been doing a lot of work um, in politics and in um, social justice and stuff like that, human rights. Oh, I was just as you were you, as you were talking, it just reminded me of one thing. I, I have a, a friend who I think uh, is just about to accept um, some like post grad. I think she's doing like a postdoc. I don't know if she's going to do a postdoc or she's going to take an assistant professorship. But her whole project is about um, the black.